Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sova. Everyone, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show 131. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. Yes, everyone, fine and dandy. Thank you so much for... Joining Starship Sofa, I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We have editorial by my good self, Goodbye Steve. Fact article, the Observation Lounge, Cheryl Morgan has a great interview coming up. We have a promo from the Gamma Quadrant podcast. Then we have the main fiction by Gregory Frost, Madonna of the Maclidor, and it's narrated by Mr. JJ Campanella. There you go. Now just before we get into couple of things before we get into the editorial. Don't forget, if you are on Twitter and if you are on Facebook, I'm on there. Please come over and check out, check, check out me. But especially, wait, both of them, Facebook and Twitter, I've got them linked together. And everything I put in there, you know, you can kind of, if you're on one or the other or on both, you'll see it. You'll see it over there. You'll actually see a picture of me on Facebook, God forbid. And I'll tell you what, another thing you'll see over there as well actually is a picture of this working desk. This very one here that I'm recording on and I do everything on there. So come and have a look in the hub, the heart of the beaten starship so you can get a picture of it. It's not a pr- she's not a pretty girl when <laughs> deep down. Oh, it's just a place where I can actually announce little bits of kind of news or anything really. It's actually where I get to meet you as well. Do you know what I mean? So it kind of works both ways, this. So please, you know, do pop over. Say hello. Another little shout-out, a little shout-out for help as well. I'm working in, I'm working on, got my little Apple Mac laptop, and I've always kind of, I'm, you know, 20 years of being a, a PC guy, and I'm struggling like hell to, to kind of convert over to Mac. I just really use it as a secondary device. You know, it's, it's hard. By God, it's hard to be... <laughs> Well, I'm finding it very hard. And I've got actually boot drive going on in the Apple Mac. And I actually live in boot drive on the PC world. But I made a commitment to you that because my wife found out that I wasn't using it to the best, you know what I mean? Spend all that money and they're not using it. So I've made a commitment to try and learn Apple Mac programs. And if anyone can help us with the Logic Studio Pro and more specifically with Soundtrack Pro 3, it's, it's just like a different world, different language, and I'm struggling like so not right? You know what I mean? I like things to learn, you know. I'm the type of person who kind of likes it, just there and then. That's how you do it, and that's it. And I don't like to kind of, that's probably why I wasn't any good at school. I don't like to kind of revise and, you know, I just tell us it how to do it, and that'll do us. So if there's anyone on there, get in touch with us, please. It'd be great nice to kind of find out how to work this thing. And, you know, I'll we'll chat over Skype, and we'll, we'll kind of sort something out. That would be fantastic. So thank you very much.
on to the editorial. And Goodbye Steve is the title of the editorial. And it's just really to pay homage, one of the old vanguard from the podcast and science fiction podcasting world, Steve Ely, has resigned from Escape Pod. He stepped down. And it's just to really say, you know, good luck to Steve and... What, you know what I mean? It, he brought so much to kind of me and Kieran in the early days of kicking this off. I think Steve Ely and Escapod kind of kicked off in 2005, and they probably had a good three quarters of a year, maybe a year head start on Starship Sova. You know, and we now kind of feel like wolves. You know, we started in the 2006. I think it was the June July, and you know, it was the way technology moves so quick. You know what I mean? We thought Steve Ely and the Skapod was just kind of one of the bee's knees, you know. What I mean? He just he had this presence as well, and I think that's what kind of counted for Skapod being so popular. You know, Steve Ely, his voice, you know, when you kind of listened, you just kind of things were good in the world, and he was bringing these stories, you know, to this device, this iPod, and everything, and it was a really a new buzz of a thing. And you know, it's a, it's a great shame that he stepped down, but I know he's just had a new baby. And taking on a new responsibilities in a job as well. And, I, you know what I mean? It's kind of real world steps in sometimes and takes over. But it, like I say, it, it was a great inspiration to myself and Kieran to kind of kick off Starship Sofa. And, you know, and I know everyone kind of who's listened to kind of Starship Sofa has listened to Escape Pod. You know, it's one of them kind of shows. And we've always been lucky with Escape Pod, you know, it's it's one of them things, it's it's just this kind of environment and this community, you know, it, we've been able to help out Escape Pod and they've been able to help out us and like I say, Steve was so kind in, you know, the early stages kind of promoting Starships over as well and giving nice plugs and stuff like that, so... Again, I just want to wish Steve Ely all the best, you know, and I know the whole of Starship Sova's listeners, everyone, you know, everyone who kind of contributes knows what a kind of job he did in the podcasting world for Star, you know, for Starship Sova, for Escape Pod, you know, and, you know, building it up to what it is, Podcastle, Pseudopod, you know, it's no mean feat, you know, and it takes a few hours work to kind of get all that together there and... You know, time comes on and, you know, you've got to kind of step down, let other, let the young books take over and, you know, good on him for doing that, you know, instead of maybe if it's too much for him and still trying to struggle on, do you know what I mean? He's realised it's just, it's not possible. And so, well done, Steve. And you say you've done so much for Escape Pod and, the, you know, the science fiction podcast and podcasts in general, you know, big inspiration. You'll be sorely missed. <laughs> Next, we have a little fact article by Cheryl Morgan, our girl on the ground at conventions, got a little interview. Cheryl. This is Cheryl Morgan for Starship Sofa at the EasterCon in London, and I'm here with Steve Cooper, who is one of the two co-chairs of the London in 2014 Worldcon bid. And that's the organization that is hoping to bring the Worldcon to London, obviously in 2014. And Steve's going to tell us a little bit about what's involved. Steve, could you start off by explaining what a bid is? We don't actually have the convention yet. No. Uh, A bid is basically trying to promote the event, basically get people keen enough to actually select you to be the Worldcon. 
uh, we need to basically enthuse people about the site, and that's why we went for a large launch, a, a big launch, rather than just drift into a bid. We decided we'd have a proper launch event with promotional videos, with a promotional party, and just have one big launch event that would actually get everybody enthused, and it seems to have worked. Okay, so it's something like bidding for the Olympics or to hold the, the World Cup finals, yes? It's very like that, in fact, yes. Except for there's a much larger group of people you have to influence. For the Olympics, you've maybe got a couple of hundred people who have to do wine and dine and impress. We have thousands of people we have to do. Oh dear, that, that sounds a bit difficult. Are there any other cities bidding for that year? At the moment, no, but there could always be. There's another two years to go before the actual files have to be filed. When do we actually know whether we, we have the bid? When will we become a convention rather than a bid? Come a convention uh, su- Sunday morning about 10 o'clock at the Chicago World Con, or I should say probably at the Chicago World Con because they haven't yet been selected officially yet, although they are the only bid for 2012. So sometime in the summer of 2012 at a Worldcon in probably in Chicago, there will be a vote and hopefully that vote will go London's way. Yes, we hope so. Um, at the moment, we're the only people bidding, and we hope that will be stay that way, to be honest. And we think it will do, and that London's an impressive bid to go up against. You announced this on Friday night. It's now um, Monday evening. Uh, how have things been going so far? Well, so far, we have at least 300 pre-supports taken at this convention. Um, put it in the convention and wise uh, we took about 150 pre-supports from the UK and Europe for the entire bid period for last UK Worldcon so we've probably got as many in 72 hours as 2005 got in its entire bid period which was about 3 years and what exactly is a pre-support? A pre-support is somebody who's supporting the bid. Um, there generally are two basic types. There's a, a basic pre-support, which is largely a donation to the, uh, conve- to the bid. Um, for the UK's case, it's either $20, £12. And we will, if we win the bid, give you half of that back as a discount on your membership. But the other half is a donation to the bid. We also have another type of membership, which is common through almost all Worldcom bids, which is called a friend, which is a much more expensive uh, membership at $100 or £60. And that um, basically will be fully discounted off your attending membership if you join, if we win the bid. But of course, we're not guaranteed to win the bid. So you're taking a, you are taking a risk with that and you're taking a risk with a much larger piece of money that won't give you it all back for the attending membership. Okay. And why do you need this money? Because we have thousands of people that we need to wine and dine. <laughs> you mean you're going to throw parties at conventions? Yes. We're going to throw parties at conventions and we're going to be throwing them throughout. Well, we have to, because we're a European bid, we need to throw things in Europe as well as in the US because we have to, we can't just ignore Europe and say, oh well, they'll support us anyway. We don't want to take anybody for granted. We want to get there and get everybody's enthused about the bid as possible because we want them to join the convention should we win the bid. And uh, if people are interested in helping out, what should they do? They should go to our website is the simplest way of doing this. Um, on the website, we have a website already which is uh, London in tw- 2014. And I won't bother putting this .org at the end, uh, but we also have the .com, so it would automatically take you there. The official one is .org. Uh, and on there, there is a volunteer form. Uh, so that you can either volunteer there. There's also online payment for pre-supporting and friends, so you can join online. And if you have any ideas, we've got a suggestions box on there. We know it's too far too early to talk about the convention at this point in time, but we also know... This is the only time that Europe gets to have a world contact every decade or so. And people 
bursting with ideas and they need to tell somebody so we have a suggestions box on there so if you have any suggestions for what we could do at the London Worldcon we'd love to hear about it Okay, now for the benefit of uh, the people out there who might be Worldcon regulars they'll obviously be wanting to know about your facilities so can you tell us a bit about the site you've chosen? Our site is a brand new convention centre uh, called the ICC which is attached to an existing uh, exhibition hall centre called Excel um, the the ICC consists of a 5,000-seat auditorium, a large 4,500-square-metre social space, um, which will be carpeted and be the main social space for the convention, and a 2,500-seat suite of breakout rooms. That's the core of the Worldcon. We also then have a million square feet of other exhibition space we can use, and we've got all sorts of ideas for that. Um, but we're basically for dealers and art show and all the other points but we've also got some other ideas we're looking at a bit too early to say so at this point in time um, and of course we have other comfort suites so if, if the convention gets much larger in that 2,500 breakout we'll probably take us up to a 5,000 person world con but if we get much larger than that we can expand we have another conference suite down the other end of the convention of the exhibition centre um, which will take another 1,400 people we should, increases the capacity we have and if need be we have another 32 100 and 200 person meeting rooms that run along the south gallery it's not ideal for program which is why we're not using them until we have to but they are there now anybody who's been to london on vacation knows that london hotel rooms can be quite expensive um what are plans are you putting in place to ensure that people can actually afford to stay in london i think the point is that central london hotels are expensive uh the hotels on site basically suffer the same problems as the exhibition centre does everybody knows that we go for August for for Worldcon because it's when exhibition centres are empty they have very little business the same goes for the hotels that are reliant on the exhibition centre for their business and so we've been talking to some of the hotels already and we have indicative prices that are around about £100 a night for bed and breakfast this is for a four star hotel and talk about hotels a little bit more uh, we already have 1200 rooms on site uh, a new hotel owned by the convention centre is being built on the site which will add another 250 rooms taking it to f- close to 1500 rooms and then there are also plans in th- other hotels possibly on the site and a, a luxury floating hotel to be moored alongside the exhibition centre so we're hoping to have something like 1800 to 2000 rooms on site I have had a look at the location on the map, and it appears to be quite close to some tube stations. It is. It basically has two dedicated, uh, what are called Docklands Light Railway stations. They are now actually titled um, Docklands Light Railway XL West and Docklands Light Railway um, XL East and ICC. Um, these basically will take you direct to somewhere like Tower Bridge. So they take you right into the tourist centre of London. And from there, you can actually catch onto other lines, like the Jubilee Line, which will take you right across to the west of London to the Museum District. OK, well, that all sounds very exciting. I, I'm particularly interested that you're talking about being bigger than 5,000, because there haven't been that many Wilcons that have been that large. What, what sort of uh, numbers do you expect? We're hoping to get at least 6,000, to be honest. We're not budgeting on 6,000, but we basically... 
thing we have to plan for everything between the size of the Glasgow World Cod, which was about 4,000 warm bodies, up, up, basically. We don't have a, a top thing we could think of. But you've got to remember, London is one of the largest metropolises in the world. It's got over 10 million people within an, an hour's commute of the Excel Centre. Um, it's one of the hearts of British uh, science fiction fandom. Um, the convention we're at at the moment is the British National Science Fiction Convention, and I don't know the latest numbers, but it's something last time I said it's close to 1,400 members. Um, a normal EasterCon in somewhere outside of London area will pick up 800 members or something like that. It's just the extra draw. There are people come, people know London, they love London, and they they come out through the woodwork. And certainly, a lot of my American friends are already jumping up and down with glee and saying, "Yes, holiday in London. Uh, we, we're definitely coming." So that sounds very positive. It is, and what you have to remember is that London has one big advantage over any other uh, World Car site. You can fly direct from far more destinations to London um, you can fly to Heathrow in the, the, and this year's uh, Nasvik in Raleigh Durham there is one long distance international flight that international flight goes from Raleigh Durham in North Carolina to Heathrow so, uh, it all sounds like things are going quite well at the moment, um, what uh, plans next just going to conventions? going to conventions, our, ne- our next plans really are to have two more launches we plan to launch at NASVIC in Raleigh uh, in the beginning of August, and that will be our US-North American launch, after which we will start promoting and bidding heavily in North America. And then we were having an international launch at the this year's Worldcon in Melbourne, Australia. Now, some people, of course, will be uh, wondering what guests you're going to have. You can't announce that yet, can you? No. Two things are always embargoed between, before you have win the bed. That is the name of the convention and the guests. The name of the convention is a bit of silliness, really. I'm not sure why that's embargoed. But the guests is a very good reason for it, that uh, you don't want people to feel like, especially in the contested bid, that people are voting against one guest or the other. And the people, you don't want people voting for your convention because they think your guest is better than somebody else's guest it gets into lots of nasty stuff really their personal stuff so it's best not to announce your guest beforehand but one of the good things about a Worldcon is that uh, you don't just get the guests of honor you get loads and loads of people oh yes um guests of honor are re- it is really about honoring somebody for their contribution to science fiction the rest, but we get thousands of authors, um, well, not thousands, but hundreds anyway, but hundreds of authors, professionals, editors, artists, and thousands of fans. And these fans are interesting people in their own right. And we have t- leading scientists who are just fans who just come to the thing and will give you and give talks on, their, on leading edge science. It's a wonderful event. Well, thank you very much, Steve, and I wish you all the best of luck with the bid. Uh, hopefully, we'll become a convention in 2012, and I look forward to attending the convention in 2014. I hope to see you there very much. Thank you, Steve. You know, I'm really fascinated about this, you know, if, if England can kind of, or London can kind of scoop that Worldcon in 2014, that'll be, you know, something special as well. Just to get it over on the UK as well, it'd be very nice. So looking forward to keeping an eye on that as well. Thank you, Cheryl. And look out for more work by and look more reports from the Observation Lounge by Cheryl Morgan. Cheryl, thank you so much. Next, we have a promo by the Gamma Quadrant podcast. If you remember, a while ago, I played their first promo, and they're still going strong, and they're up to season three of everything Deep Space Nine. So if you like Deep Space Nine, which I certainly do, please check out the Gamma Quadrant podcast, and here is their promo. 
Ever feel like it is hard to make friends with people from other planets? Tired of other races in the Gamma Quadrant pushing you around? The universe is a dangerous place. The Dominion can help. We offer mediation, protection, Ketracel White provided to every new recruit. Contact us via the iTunes store under the Gamma Quadrant, and one of our Vortas will be happy to send you an application. The Gamma Quadrant is the podcast dedicated to all things Deep Space Nine. Look for us at gammaquadrant.libsyn.com, which is L-I-B-S-Y-N, or under Gamma Quadrant at the iTunes store. There you go. Thank you so much. Do pop over to the Gamma Quadrant. So now for the main fiction by Gregory Frost. I'll give you a little heads up a bio of Gregory Frost. He is a writer of the best-selling fantasy, science fiction and thrillers who decided to write fiction many years ago as a result of a fire. He has been a finalist for every major award in science fiction, fantasy and horror fiction. His latest work, The Geology, Shadow Bridge, Lord Trophit, voted one of the best fantasy novels of the year by the American Library Association and which was a finalist for the GM's Chip Tree Award in 2009. It received starred reviews from Booklist and Publishers Weekly. His previous novels was the historical thriller Fitcher's Brides, finalist for both the World Fantasy and International Horror Guilds Awards for Best Novel. He has published over 50 short stories as well. Publishers Weekly called his Golden Griffin short story collection, Attack of the Jazz Giants and other stories, one of the best of the year. Currently, his short fiction appears in Full Moon City, an anthology of werewolf tales. The YA anthology, The Beastly Bride, edited by Ellen Datlow and Terry Weinling. And in the Lovecraftian anthology, Cthulhu Reigns. He also directs the fiction workshop at Swarthmore College in Swarthmore, PA. The story is narrated by the amazing Mr. J.J. Campanella as well. Look out for next week for Jim's Science News. And actually Jim's going to bring to the show a little fact article on one of his own hobby projects that he's doing on in the Doc Savage series as well. So, well, fingers crossed he's going to do that for us. <laughs> I, just, I just asked him the other day. So the Starship Sova and her oral delights is very proud to present Madonna of the Maclidor by Gregory Frost. You first hear of Gabriel Perea and the Virgin while covering the latest fire at the Chevron refinery in El Paso. The blaze is under control, the water cannon hoses still shooting white arcs into the scorched sky. You collected some decent shots, but you would still like to capture something unique, even though you know most of it won't get used. The Herald needs only one all-inclusive shot of this fire, and you got that hours ago. The rest is out of love. You like to think there's a piece of W. Eugene Smith in you, an aperture in your soul, always seeking the perfect image. The two firemen leaning against one of the trucks is a good composition. Their plastic clothes are grease-smeared. Their faces with the hoods off are pristine. Both men are Hispanic, but the soot all around them makes them seem pallid and angelic and strange. And both of them are smoking, It's really too good to ignore. You set up the shot without them knowing, without seeming to pay them much attention, and that's when you catch the snippet of their conversation. I'm telling you, Cholo, the virgin told Perea this explosion would happen. 
Mrs. Delgado knew all about it. She tells him everything. She's telling us all. The time is coming, I think. Click. What time is that, you ask, capping the camera? The two men stare at you a moment. You spoke in Spanish, part of the reason the paper hired you. Just by your inflection, though, they know you're not a native. You may understand all right, but you are an outsider. The closest fireman smiles. His teeth are perfect, whiter than the white bar of the chevron insignia beside him. Mexicans have good tooth genes, you think. His smile is his answer. He's not going to say more. All right, then. Who's Gabriel Perea? Oh, he's a prophet. The prophet, man. A seer. He knows things. The Virgin tells him. The Virgin Mary? Your disbelief is all too plain. The first fireman nods and flicks away his cigarette butt, the gesture transforming into a cross. Bless me, Father. Does he work for Chevron? The firemen look at each other and laugh. Are you kidding, man? They'd never hire him, even if he made it across the Rio Bravo with a green card between his teeth. Rio Bravo is what they call the Rio Grande. You turn and look, out past the refinery towers, past the scrub and the sand and the Whataburger stand, out across the riverbanks to the brown speckled bluffs, the shapes that glitter and ripple like a mirage in the distance. Juarez. He's over there. Un esclavo de la maquiadora. A factory slave. Already you're imagining the photo essay. The man who speaks to the Virgin. Imagining it in the Smithsonian. The National Geographic. An essay on Juarez. Hell on Earth. And smack in the middle of hell. The Virgin Mary and her disciple. It assembles as if it's been waiting for you to find it. How about, you say, I buy you guys a few beers when you're finished, and you tell me more about them. The second guy stands up, grinning. Hey, we're finished now, amigo. Yeah, that fire's drowning. Nothing gonna blow up today. The Virgin said so. You follow them with a black sky and roiling on all sides like a biblical plague settling in for a prolonged stay. You don't believe in her. You haven't since long ago. Decades. Childhood. Lapsed Catholics adopt the faith of opposition. The church lied to you all the time you were growing up. Manipulated your fears and guilts. You don't plan to forgive them for this. The ones who stay believers are the ones who didn't ask questions. Who accepted the rules. The restrictions on faith. Faith, you contend, is all about not asking the most important questions. Most people don't think. Most people follow in their hymnals. It takes no more than a fingernail to scrape the guilt from the statues and see the rot below. Virgin Mary didn't exist for hundreds of years after the death of Jesus. She was fashioned by edict, by a not very bright emperor. She had a cult following and they gained influence in the ear of Constantine. It was all politics. Quid pro quo. Bullshit. This is not what you tell the firemen, but it does make the Virgin the perfect queen for Juarez. That place is all politics and bullshit, too. Reality, wrapped in a shroud of the fantastic and the grotesque, like the church itself. You went across the first time two years ago right after arriving. The managing editor, a burly bearded radical in a sport coat and tie named Joe Baum, took you in. 
He knew how you felt about the power of photography, and after all, you're the deputy art director. One afternoon, he just walked over to your desk and said, Come on, we're going to take the afternoon. Go visit some people you need to see. You didn't understand until later that he was talking about the ones on film. Most of them, dead. Baum covered El Paso cultural events, which meant he mingled with managers and owners of the maquiladoras. We'll have to get you into the loop. Always need pictures of the overlords and their tuxes to biff up the society pages. He didn't like them too much. In his green Ford, you crossed over the Puente Libre, all concrete and barbed wire. He talked the whole time. What you're going to see here is George Bush's New World Order, and don't kid yourself that it's not. Probably you won't want to see it. Hell, I don't want to see it. And America doesn't want to see it with a vengeance. He took you to the apartment of a man named Jaime Poyamano. Baum calls him the Chicken Man. Mustache, dark hair, tattoos. A face like a young Charles Bronson. Chicken Man is a street photographer. We buy some of his photos, and we buy some from the others. There were six or seven in the little apartment that day. One of them, unexpectedly, a woman. The windows were covered, and an old sheet had been stuck up on the wall. They'd been expecting you. Baum had arranged in advance for your edification. What you're going to see today, he promised, is the photos we don't buy. The slideshow began. Pictures splashed across the sheet on the wall. First, there were the female corpses, all in various states of decay and decomposition. Most were nude, but they weren't really bodies as much as sculptures now in leather and wood. The photographers had made them strange and haunting and terrifying all at the same time. In the projector light, you can see their eyes, squinting hard, glancing down, here and there a look of pride, something almost feral. The woman is different. She stares straight at death. Teenage girls, Baum told you when the images kept coming. They get up at like 4 a.m. to walk for miles to catch a bus to take them to the factory by 6. They live in colonias, little squatter villages made of pallet wood and trash. Most of these girls here were kidnapped on the way to work, tortured, raped, murdered. Nobody goes looking for them much. Employee turnover in the maquilladoras is between 50 and 150% annually. So they're viewed as just another runaway chica who has to be replaced. The pandillas, the local gangs get them, or the federales on patrol, or even the occasional serial murderer. Who knows who? No one's looking for her anyway, save maybe her family. All you could think to say was, they've lost their breadwinner, Baum snorted. That's right. She worked a 48-hour week, six days, for about $25. A day? A week. Per day, they make about $4.50. Not just these girls, you understand. All of them. All the workers. You try to work that out, how they live on so little money. Finally, you suggested, the cost of living here is cheaper. The handsome woman photographer's eyes shifted to you, cold with disgust. The pictures never stopped coming. You finally passed the gauntlet of dead women. Now it was a man dangling like a piñata from a power line. He'd been electrocuted while trying to run a line from a transformer to his home. Then other dead men. 
some dying in the street with people all around them, others dead like the women, executed, tortured, buried alive. He tried to look elsewhere as the images just kept slamming the wall. How many deaths could there be? Baum suddenly said, Let me put the cost of living things in perspective for you. You're 17. You live in El Paso. You work six days a week, all day, and you buy your groceries and pay your bills on your $35 paycheck. That's adjusted gross to compensate for the differences in cost on our side of the river. On this side along the river, there are over 300 factories. Big names you know. RCA, Motorola, Westinghouse, GE. We use their products. We all do. They employ almost 200,000 workers, mostly female, living crammed into the colonias. Altogether, about 2 million people. That's 80% unemployment, by the way. Between the images and the facts, you're lost and grasping for some sort of reality. This is what a series of smiling presidents promised the world? Even as you flounder, the photos change course. A severed arm dangles from the big face of Mickey Mouse, both nailed to a wall. A clown head tops a barbed wire fence post with laundry drying on the wire. A six-year-old holds a Coca-Cola can, only the straw is going up his nose, and you can tell by his slack face that whatever's in that can is fucking him up severely. The power of these images is in their simplicity. This isn't art. It just is. All you could do was repeat the mantra that this is what art is supposed to do. Shake you up. Make you think differently. Make you sweat. Doing its job. God, yes. Afterwards, Baum introduced you to the photographers, but the room stayed dark. You walked through the line, shaking hands, nodding, dazed. One man was drunk. Another, the feral one, had the jittery sheen of an addict. The woman hung back. Reality after that onslaught barely touched you. Baum bought some of the pictures in spite of what he told you paying far too much for them. Maybe he collected them. You were sure they weren't going to get into the paper. You know what the paper will print. He walked you out across the street, past his car, and through the Plaza de Amas, the main square. It was Friday night, and there must have been a thousand people milling around. The ghosts of all those photos tagged along, bleeding into the world. The cathedral across the plaza was lit in neon reds, greens, and golds, looking more like a casino than a church. Everywhere, people were selling something. Most of it was trash collected and reassembled into trinkets, earrings, belts, whatever their skill allowed. There were clowns on stilts wandering around, a man selling flavored ice chips. Baum bought two. Others sold tortillas, drugs, themselves. All of it smelled desperate. A lot of the crowd, Baum told you, as you drove home after, were actually Americans. They come across the border on Friday nights for a little action. The factory girls sell themselves for whatever extra dollars they can get from the party boys. You remember at some point in the drive asking him why the workers don't unionize and provoking the biggest laugh of all. No union organizer would have a job by day's end. That's why. Some of them don't make it home alive either although you can't tie anything to the corporations that fire them. 
just as likely they piss off their co-workers by threatening the status quo. It's happened before. Whole shifts have been fired. Everyone blamed for the actions of one or two. When you're an ant, it doesn't take a very big rock to squash you. My, what a glorious testament to American greed. And we've even kept it from crossing the border, too. So far. The conversation comes back to you now, driving away from your drinks with the firemen. Gabriel Perea was an activist. In Baum's terms, he was a dangerous man to himself and anyone who knew him. The Virgin turned him, saved him. She's protecting him for something important. The firemen expect something between Armageddon and Rapture. Transcendence. All you know is that you want to get there before the kingdom of heaven opens for business. Uraguasa, Bomb says when you tell him what you want to do. Just a lot of superstitious chatter. It's nonsense. I've heard about this guy before. He's like an urban legend over there. They need for him to exist, just like her. Nevertheless, you say, it's a great story. The kind of thing that could garner attention. Awards. The human spirit finding the means to survive in the maquiladora, even if that means is a fantasy. Baum concedes it could be terrific. If there's anything to it. There's only one way to find out. In C, the Juarez, all roads lead to the chicken man. On the outside of his apartment, someone has sprayed the words, Dios está aquí. Chicken man has moved three times since you first met him. Most of the street photographers move routinely just to stay alive, to stay ahead of the narcotraficante, or the cops, or anyone they've pissed off with their pictures. Of the six you met that first day, only five are still living. Now, Poyamanos hold up just off the Pisea Triumfa de la República, and hold up is the right term. The cinder block building has chicken wire over the windows, and black plastic trash bags on the inside of them. You knock once and slide your business card under the door. After a while, the door opens slightly and you go in. It's hot inside, and the air smells like chemicals, like fixer and developer. The only light on is a single red bulb. Chicken Man wears a Los Lobos tank top, shorts and sandals. He's been breathing this air forever. He should have mutated by now. Cubo Deputy! Deputy is the street photographer's name for you. Titles are better than names here anyway. They call Joe Baum La Bamba. He invites you in. You tell him what the fireman told you, what you want to do with it. El hombre de la Madonna. I know the stories. A lot of them circulating round. So what's the truth? He isn't real? Doesn't see her? Oh, he's real. And he maybe sees her. He crosses to the shelves made of cinder blocks and boards and rummages around in one of thirty or so cardboard boxes, returns with a four-by-five print. In the red light, it's difficult to see. Chicken Man turns on a mag light and hands it to you. You're looking at a man in dark coveralls. He's standing at a crazy Elvis Presley kind of angle, feet splayed and legs twisted. His hands are up in front of him, the fingers curled. There are big protective goggles over his eyes. He has a long square jaw and a mustache, Behind him, other figures in goggles and coveralls stand, out of focus. They're co-workers, and this is inside a factory someplace. Fluorescent lights overhead are just greenish smears. 
The expression on his face is fierce, wide-eyed, damn near cross-eyed. He was seeing her right then, says the chicken man. You took this? Me? I don't set food in the maquilas. Factory owners don't like us. Don't want us taking pictures in there. Some of the young ones get in for a day, shoot, and get out. I'm too old to try that kind of crap. Who then? Doncella Loca. He holds out his hand and takes the photo back. When he hands it back, there's writing on it in grease pencil. A name. Margarita Espenada. And the words, Colonia Universidad. He describes how you drive there. You met her, he says. The very first time La Bamba brought you over. She lives in her car mostly. Auto loco. I let her use my chemicals when she needs to. And the sink. She's shooting the Tara Hunara kids now. Indians. They don't trust nobody, but they trust her. Same with the maquilas. Most of the workers are women. She gets in where I can't. She's kind of like you, deputy. Only smart. He grins. You grin back and hand him a twenty and three rolls of film. He slides the money into his pocket but kisses the plastic canisters. Gracias, amigo. Colonia Universidad is easy to find because half of it has just burnt to the ground and the remains are still smoking. Blackened oil drums, charcoal that defined shacks the day before, naked bed springs and a few bicycle frames twisted into Salvador Dali forms. Margarita Espanada is easy to find, too. She wears a camera around her neck and black jeans, boots, and a blue work shirt. The jeans are dirty, the shirt stained under the arms and down the back. Her black hair is short. The other women around her are wearing dresses and have long hair and scarves on their heads. At a quick glance, you might mistake her for a man. They're all watching you before the car even stops. When you stride toward them, the women all back up, spread apart, move away. Margarita stands her ground. She raises her camera and takes her picture, as though at an act of defiance. From a distance, she looks to be about 20, but up close you can see the lines around the eyes and mouth, more like early 30s, lean. There's a thin scar across the bridge of her nose and one cheek. If she remembers you from the chicken man's, there's no sign of it in her eyes. You hand her the photo. She looks at it, at her name on the back, then wipes it down on her thigh. You want a drink, deputy? There's the tiniest suggestion of amusement in the question. I'm not really a deputy, you know. It's just a nickname. Hey, at least they don't call you Pendeo. I don't know if they don't. She laughs, and for a moment that resolute, defiant face becomes just beautiful. The shack she takes you to is barely outside the fire line, the frame is held together by nails driven through bottle caps. The walls are cut-up shipping cartons for three musketeers' candy bars. No floor, only dirt. There's an old, rust-stained mattress and a couple of beat-up suitcases. She comes up with a bottle of tequila from God knows where, apologizes for the lack of ice and glasses. Then she takes a long swig from the mouth of the bottle. Her eyes are watering as she passes it to you. You smell her then. The odor of a woman mixed in with the smoke smell, sweat, and flesh, and dirt. You almost want to ask her why she does this, lives this way, but you haven't any right. Instead, you say his name as a question. 
She lays down the photo. Gabriel Perea is real. He exists. He's what they call an assembler on a production line. The Maquila is about 20 miles from here. The story of him grows as it travels all around. You recite the fireman's version. Great prophet. Seer who will lead them into the kingdom of heaven. Piero Guasa is her answer. Pure foolishness. Exactly what Baum said. But the picture. He is seeing the virgin. She shrugs. Yes, I know. From your eyes. How could I take the picture and not say it's true? She pushes her thumb against the image covering the face. This says it's real, not true. I know that he tells everyone what the Virgin wants them to know. And what's that? To be patient, to wait, to endure their hardships, to remember that they will all find grace in heaven more beautiful than anything they can imagine. That wouldn't take much of a heaven. Has anyone else seen her? No one in the factory now. But someone else? Again, she shrugs. Maybe. There are stories. Someone saw her in a bathroom, in a mirror. There are always stories once it starts. People who don't want to be left out, who need to hear from her. That can be a lot of people. In Colonia El Mirador, a sacred heart shrine begins to bleed. It's a cheap little cardboard picture. They say it bleeds, so I go and take its picture. Does it? Does it bleed? I look in the picture I take at how this piece of cardboard is nailed up, and I think, ah, the nail head has rusted. The rust has run down the picture. That's all. But I don't say so. So you lie to them, the people who made the claims about it? She snatches back the bottle. Her nostrils are flared in defiance, anger. But she laughs at your judgment, dismissing it. I take the picture, and it says what is what. If you don't see then what good is there in telling you how to see? The anger contained burns off her like radiation. You flip open your Minox and take her picture. She stares at you in the aftermath of the flash, as if in disbelief. Breaking the tension, you ask, Is he crazy? She squats down in the dirt, her back pressed against the far wall, takes off the camera and sets it on the mattress. Listen. I got a job in a factory because I heard there was a dangerous man there. A Zapatista brother. Someone of the reality. He had workers stirred up. And I thought, I want to be there when they have him killed. I want to document it. The bosses will pay workers to turn in their co-workers. Pay them more money than they can earn in a month. So it's for sure someone will turn him in. But this Perea, he sought out those people and he convinced them not to do this. He offered them hope, the dream we can all dream, so that when we waken, it will remain with us. That's what he promised. When I learned that, then I knew I had to photograph him and his murder. Except the virgin showed up. She grins. I hadn't even gotten my first exciting $20 paycheck. The rumor circulated that he was going to confront the managers. Everyone was breathing this air of excitement. And I have my camera. I'm ready. Only all of a sudden, right on the factory floor, Gabriel Perea has a vision. He points and he cries, Oh, mother of God, see her. Can you see her? Can you hear her, good people? Of course we can't. No one can. They try. They all look around. But you know they don't see her. He has to tell it. She says, Wait. 
She says, there will be a sign. She'll come again and talk to us. Did she? Did she come back? About once every week. She came and spoke to him when he was working. People started crowding around him, waiting for the moment. It's always when he doesn't expect. Pretty soon there are people clustering outside the factory, following Gabriel Perea home. The managers in their glass booths just watch and watch. They didn't try to stop it? No, and no one got into trouble for leaving their positions or for trespassing, trying to see him, to hear his message. And I begin to think, these men are at least afraid of God. There is something greater and more powerful than these Norte-Americanos. Yet you don't believe it. In answer, she gets up and takes the larger suitcase and throws it open on the mattress. Inside are photos, some in sleeves, some loose, some in folders. You see a color shot of a mural of a Mayan head surrounded by temples, photos of women like those you scared off outside, one of a man lying peacefully sleeping on a mattress in a shack like this one. She glances at it and says, He's dead. His heater malfunctioned and carbon monoxide killed him. Or maybe he did it on purpose. She pulls out a manila folder and opens it. There's a picture of an assembly line, a dozen women in hairnets and surgical gowns and rubber gloves seated along the assembly line. What's this place make? Motion controller systems. You stare at a photo sticking out of the pack of Gabriel Perea head-on, preaching, in that twisted martial arts pose of his. This time she has crouched behind equipment to get this shot, but in the background you can see the managers all gathered. Most of them are grainy shadows, but the three faces that are visible are clearly not frightened of what's happening here. They look almost bored. She nods. You think he's a fake? Comes in as an agitator to catch workers who'd be inclined to organize, and then he catches them in a big net? A phony appearance by the Virgin Mary, promising them a wonderful afterlife if they just grind themselves down like good little girls and boys in this one? She glances at you oddly, then says, Maybe they don't call you names, deputy. You meet her eyes, smile, thinking that you'd be willing to fall in love with this other photographer but the idea fades almost as fast as it arrives. She lives with nothing and takes all the risks while you have everything and take no risks at all. Her dreams are all of her people. Yours are of awards and recognition. She offers you the bottle again, and you drink and wheeze and wonder why it is that you can't have both dreams, why yours seems petty and cheap. You don't believe in the Virgin either. The two of you should be able to support each other, Ignoring the delusions of a few people over their rusting shrine is a far cry from ignoring this kind of scam. She agrees to get you an interview with Gabriel Perea. It will take some days. He is a very reluctant holy man, more shy than the Tarahumara. Come back in three days. To this colonia, to this shack to wait for her. All right, you think, that's good. It gives you time to get information. You give her her five film canisters, and she kisses you on the cheek for it. You can feel her lips all the way home. When you tell Baum what you found, he sends you down to see Andy Jardine. Andy's a walking encyclopedia of corporate factology. If it's listed in the DJI, NASDAQ, or the S&P 500, he's got a profile on his computer 
if not his head. He barely acknowledges you when you show up. The two of you had one conversation on the day you were hired. Baum introduced you. Andy said, Hey. You take pictures. He babbles in stocks. Two languages that don't recognize each other without a translator. He has carrot-colored hair that might have been in dreadlocks the last time it was mowed and wears black plastic frame glasses through which he peers myopically at his computer screen. You clear your throat, ask him if he knows of the company. Immediately, you get his undivided attention. He reels off everything. No one has ever accused this kid of trying to hold back. They manufacture control systems, have government contracts, probably fall into someone's black budget like most of the military manufacturers. Their stock is hot, a good investment, sound and steady. They don't actually manufacture anything in the maquiladora, which is a common story. They just assemble parts, which are shipped up to Iowa, where the company is based. That's where the controllers are made. He says they're developing what are called genetic algorithms. When you look blank, he happily sketches in the details. Genetic algorithms are the basis for lots of artificial intelligence research. Of course, he adds... There's no such thing currently as AI, not in the evil computer mind bent on world domination sense. It's all about learning circuits, routines that adjust when conditions change, that can refine themselves based on past experience. Not brains, not thinking, a kind of mathematical awareness. Before you leave, he invites you to buy some of their stock. This is a really good time for them, he says. Later on, Baum tells you that Andy's never invested a cent in his life. He just loves to watch. The ultimate investment voyeur. And you can expect to get every article that even mentions your company from now on. He'll probably forward you their S&P daily, too. You're into something here, he asks, as if that's the last thing that concerned him. The real question he's asking is, how long is this going to take? All you can do is shrug and say, I don't really know. This woman, this photographer, she has a notion he's a ringer. Someone the company threw in there to manipulate the workers and keep them docile. I want to interview him, take his picture, get inside the factory and get some pictures there too. You know, get what I can before they know that I'm looking at him specifically. Is it a Catholic thing? I mean, your interest? It's not about me. Whether or not he believes you, he doesn't say. As you're leaving, he adds... You've seen enough to know that weird and bizarre are the norms over there, right? Again, he's not saying it outright. Beneath his camaraderie lies the real edginess. He's worried about you and this story, how you fit together. I won't forget, Hecho in Mexico is Hecho in hell. Baum laughs. It's his saying, after all. Perea speaks so quietly and so fast you can't catch half of it. He sits in the corner away from the lantern on the ground. He bows his head when he speaks as if he's ashamed to admit what's happening to him. This is not to your thinking the behavior of a man who is playing a role. Still, how can anyone be certain? You take pictures of him bathed in lantern light, looking like a medieval pilgrim who has made his journey and found his god. Margarita kneels beside you, leaning forward to hear clearly, translating his murmured Spanish. I don't know why the Virgin picked me. I'm just a chumula. That's an Indian from Chiapas, deputy, she explains. I believe that things need to change. 
People need their dignity as much as their income. I thought I could do this on my own. Change things in this factory, I mean. The other workers would trust me, and together we would break the cycle in which the neoliberals keep us. What does she look like? She has blue robes, a cloth over her head. I can sort of see through her, too, and her voice. It fills my head like a ringing bell, but it's soft like she's whispering to me. No one else sees her. No one else hears her. He looks up at you, his eyes pleading for understanding. She stopped me from doing a terrible thing. If we had protested as I planned, many people would have been killed. They would bring in the Federalis, and the Federalis would beat us. There would be people waiting for us when we got home, people the Federalis won't see. Some of us would have been tortured and killed. It might have been me, but I was willing to take the risk to make this change. She stopped you. He nods. Someone said my very first day that the factory is built on a sacred place. In the San Cristobal's, we have these places. Maybe she heard our fear. There is a shrine nearby where there is a picture of Jesus weeps, and another with tears of blood. Margarita glances sharply at you as she repeats this. You nod. She tells us to live, to endure what life gives us no matter how hard. She knew what was in my heart. She said that the greatest dignity could be found in the grace of God. To us, finally, the kingdom will be opened for all we suffer. It will be closed to those who oppress us. He's seeing her again as he speaks, his eyes looking at a memory instead of at you. Afterwards, you ride in your car alone. Margarita insists on driving her own, an old Chevy Impala that rumbles without a muffler. She won't ride with anyone. It's one of those things about her that makes it clear she's crazy. Your tape recorder plays. Margarita's translation fills the night. Perea's telling the truth so far as he knows it. In a moment of extreme danger, the version appeared. That's happened before. In fact, she usually manifests where the climate's explosive. People are strained, fragmented, minds desperate for escape. It's religion to some, mental meltdown to you. So why do you resist even that explanation now? A Catholic thing, Baum had asked? That's not it, though. You recollect something you once heard Carl Sagan say in an interview. Extraordinary events require extraordinary proof. So, Carl, you asked the dark interior, how do you pull proof out of a funhouse mirror? By the time Margarita returns, you know what you're going to do. You tell her to see what she thinks. She sits back on the mattress. You can hear her pulling off her boots. You might get away with it, she answers, and there's anger in her voice. If they don't pay too much attention to your very Castilian Espanol, you still talk like a gringo, and you still think like one too. You listen to what he says, and you see it all in black and white. Norte Americano versus us. La Bamba's the same way. You guys see what most of your people won't, but you see it with old eyes. How are we? I don't understand. The Zapatistas, you mean? What? She makes a noise to dismiss you. And there's the sound of the bottle being opened. Not sharing. Then suddenly she's talking. Close enough now you can almost feel the heat of her breath. It's not 
North against South anymore. Rich whites against poor Mexicans. That's only a thing, a speck. It's the whole world, deputy. The maquiladora is the whole world now. Japan is here. Korea is here. Anyone who wants to make things without being watched, without having to answer to anyone, without having to pay fairly, they're here and everywhere else too. Ya basta, you understand? Enough. It's not about NAFTA, about whose treaty promises what. Whoever's treaty, it will be just the same. Here right now in Mexico, the drug dealers invest, buy factories, take their money, and grind their own people to make more money, clean money. Clean. It's no different here than anywhere else. It's even, Dios mío, better here than some places. It's a new century, and the countries bleed together. And the only borders, the only fences are made of bodies. All of the pictures you've seen. But if you don't see this in all of them, then you're seeing nothing. Clearly it's time to leave. I'm sorry. That's all you can think to say. And you turn to go. And suddenly, she's blocking your way. Her hands close on your arms. For all your fantasies, you didn't see this coming. Here in a shack with a cardboard door is not where you'd have chosen. Only this isn't your choice. It's entirely hers. Anybody could come by, but nobody does. She works her clothes off, at the same time tugging at her own in hasty, angry, near-violent action. Sex out of anger. You keep thinking she's as crazy as they said she was. She's furious with you for your stupidity. How can she possibly want to fuck you too? For all of which, you don't fight. Of course you don't. It's your fantasy, however unexpected and inexplicable. You fall asleep with your arms around her, her breasts warm against you, almost unsure that any of it happened. The Virgin only visits Perea in the factory. That's where you get a job, driving a forklift. It's something you used to do, so at least you don't look like an idiot, even if they're suspicious of your accent. If they are, they say nothing. They're hiring. From what Baum said, they're always hiring. You get assigned a small locker. In it, your work things. Coveralls and safety glasses. There are signs up in every room in bright red Spanish. Protective gear must be worn at all times, and... Wear your goggles. Protect your eyes. Your guide points to one of these and says, Don't think they're kidding. They'll fire you on the spot if they catch you not wearing the correct apparel. The lift is articulated. It can take you almost to the ceiling with a full pallet. It has control buttons for your left hand like those found on a computer game device. Working it is actually a pleasure at first. The day is long and dull. Breaks are almost non-existent. One in the morning, one in the afternoon, both about as long as it takes to smoke a cigarette. The other workers ask where you're from, how you got here. Margarita helped you work out a semi-plausible story about being fired from dock work in Veracruz when you got caught drunk. At least you've been to Veracruz. A few people laugh at the story and commiserate. Drunk. Yeah. Nobody pries. There's hardly time for questions, even over lunch which is the only place you get to take off the safety glasses and relax. But you see suspicion in a few eyes. You can tell any story you want, but you can't hide the way you tell it. Your voice isn't from Vera Cruz. Nevertheless, no one challenges you. 
Maybe they think you're a company ringer, a spy. That would give them good reason to steer clear of you. Whatever you are, they don't want trouble. That's what Baum said. This job is all they've got. And at week's end, just like them, you'll collect your $22.50 too. The second day you're there, the version appears to Gabriel Perea. You're unloading a shipment of circuit boards and components off the back of a semi when suddenly you find yourself all alone. It's too strange. You climb down and wander out of the loading bay and into the warehouse itself. Everyone's gathered there, a circle of hundreds. Right in the middle, Perea stands at that crazy angle like a man with displaced hips. His hands are out, palms wide, and he's repeating her words for everyone. She loves us all. We are all her children. We are all of us saved. And our children are saved. Our blood is his blood. The atmosphere practically crackles. Every eye is riveted to him. You move around the outside perimeter looking for the masters. There are two up on a catwalk. One looks at you as if you're a bigger spectacle than Perea. You turn away quickly and stare like the others are doing, trying to make like you were looking for a better view of the event. From somewhere in the crowd comes the clicking of a shutter. Someone is taking shots. You could take out your tiny Minox now and shoot a couple yourself, but there's nothing to see that Margarita didn't capture already. Nothing worth drawing any more attention to yourself. Nada que ver. The words echo in your head. For a long time you stare at him, the Nino loves us all. He is the pure love of a child. Care for him. It's for all he asks of you. People murmur amen and yes. Eventually, you chance another look at the two on the catwalk. One of them seems to be talking, but not to the other. You think, he's either schizophrenic or he's got a microphone. In a matter of minutes, the spectacle is over. She had nothing remarkable to say. She was just dropping in to remind everyone of her love for them and theirs for her. Now she won't come again for days. Another week. Except for the first two nights who eat alone in the shack. Margarita is somewhere else, living out of her car, photographing things, capturing moments. How does she do this? How does she live forever on the edge, capturing death, surrounded, drenched in it? How can anybody live like this? It's hopeless. The end of the world. You lay alone in the shack, as cold at night as you are scalding in the afternoon when you walk down the dirt path from the bus drop. You'd like to fall into a swimming pool and just float. The closest you can come is the communal rain barrels outside, which were once chemical barrels, and God knows whether there's benzene or something worse floating in them. Death and the water. Little kids are splashing it over themselves, drinking from it. Watching makes you yearn for a cold drink, but you wouldn't dare. Margarita's friends there cook you dinner on their makeshift stoves, for which you gladly pay. By week's end, they've made more from the dinners than you'll take home from the factory. Friday, you drive home for the weekend, exhausted. You flop down on your bed, so tired that your eyes ache. All you can think about is Margarita. Gabriel Perea's virgin has melted into a mad photographer who is using you for sex. 
That's how it feels. That's how it is, too. A part of her clings to you, drowns with you in that dark and dirty shack. At the same time, she dismisses your simplistic comprehension of the complexities of life where she lives. A week now, and you've begun, maybe, to understand it better. At least you've begun taking pictures around the colonia. It's as though she's giving you permission to participate. It would be hard not to find strange images. The dead ground outside a shack where someone has stuck one little pathetic plant in a coffee can. Another plywood shack with a sign dangling beside the door proclaiming, Siempre Coke! The factory, too. A couple of rolls of film so far as surreptitiously as possible. The machinery is too interesting not to photograph, even though you feel somehow complicitous in making it seem beautiful and exotic. Even in ugliness and cruelty, there is beauty. Even in the world of an apparition, there are lies and deceit. You finally drift off on the thought that the reason you despise the Virgin is that she sells accommodation. It's always been her message. And it's the message of the elite, the rich, a recommendation that no one who actually endures the misery could make. The phone wakes you at noon. Baum has an invitation to a reception for a Republican senator on the stump. All our best people will be there. I could use a good photographer, and you could use the contacts. Sure, you say. You'll need a tux. Got one. You'll need a shower, too. How he figured out over the phone, you can't imagine. But he's right. You do smell bad, and it's only been a week. When you get up, your whole body seems to be knitted of broken joints. It's a test of will to stand up to the spray. Being pummeled by water feels like the rapture. Pleasure meeting pain. It's an outdoor patio party with three Weber Platinum Grills big enough to feed the Dallas Cowboys, half a dozen chefs, and one waiter for every three people. Everybody wants to have their picture taken with the senator, who is wearing tan makeup to cover the fact that he looks like he's been stumping for two weeks without sleep, much less sunlight, and you're glad it's not your job to make him look good. As it is, you end up taking dozens of pictures anyway. Baum calls most of the shots, who he wants with the senator, whose faces will grace the paper in the morning. He introduces you to too many people for you to keep track of them. All the corporate executives and spouses have turned out for this gala event. When he introduces you to the head of the Texas Republican Party, just the way he says it makes it sound as if you're beholding a specifically Texan variety of Republican. For a week, you've been living in a shack with dirt floors among people who cook their food on stoves made from bricks and flat hunks of iron. And here you are in a bow tie and cummerbund, hobnobbing with the richest stratum of society in El Paso and munching on shrimp bigger than your thumb, a spread that would feed an entire colonia for days. It's not just the disparity, it's the displacement, the fragmentation of reality into razor-edged jigsaw puzzle pieces. And then Baum hauls you before a thin, balding man wearing glasses too small for his face, the kind that have no frames, just pins to hold the earpieces on. This is Stuart Coopersmith, he beams at you, a knowing smile if ever there was one. To Coopersmith, he says, He's the guy I told you about, who's into image manipulation. He withdraws before he has to explain anything to either of you. So, you're Joe's new photo essayist? 
A Smile to Hide Your Panic. I like that title better than the one they gave me at the paper. Mind if I use it? Be my guest. If he recognizes you, he shows no indication. So what do you do that I should consider taking your picture, Mr. Cooper Smith? He touches his tie as he names his company. It seems to be a habit. Across the river? La Macchiadora. You guys make control devices. We're all about control. There's a nice harmless word for someone in the big black budget of government bureaucracy flying under public radar. It's more than that, though, right? Someone told me your devices actually learn. Pattern recognition is not quite learning, not like most people think of it. Something occurs, our circuit notices, and predicts the likelihood of it recurring. And then if it does, as predicted, the circuit loops. And the more often the event occurs when it's supposed to, the more certain the circuit becomes, the more reliable the information, and, ah, the more it seems like there's an intelligence at work. What we know to be feedback looks like behavior, which is where people start saying that the things are alive and thinking. I'm not sure I... Well, it's no matter, is it? You can still take pictures without understanding something this complex. Cooper Smith says this so offhandedly you can't be certain whether you've been put down. He flutters his hand through the air as if brushing the subject away. We just manufacture parts down there. We do employ lots of people. We're very popular in the Maquiladora. Like to help out the folks over there. You nod. So what's on deck now? He looks at a champagne glass, then glances sidelong, like Cassius conspiring to kill Caesar. Oh, some work for NASA. For a Mars flight they're talking about. Using GAs to predict stress and breakdown, something they can't afford in the middle of the solar system. The software will actually measure the individual stress from moment to moment and weigh in with a protective environment if that stress jumps at all. It's still pattern recognition, you know, but not the same as on the assembly line. I suppose it's really very exciting. Amazing. It's probably even important work. In fact, you should do a story on it. I mean, not right this second, but in a few months, maybe, when the program's a little further along and NASA's happy. You and Joe should come over to the factory, shoot some pictures, write this thing up. I'd give you an exclusive. You guys beat out all the other papers. Get a little glory. We'd sure love the PR. That never hurts. You come, and I'll give you the guided tour of the place. How's that? He adjusts his tie again on the way to reaching into his coat, coming up with his business card. The card has a spinning globe on it, with tiny lights flashing here and there as the world spins. Coopersmith smiles. Cool, isn't it? The engine's embedded in the card. Doesn't take much to drive a little animation. You be sure and have Joe give me a call real soon. He turns his back, striking up another conversation almost immediately. You've been dismissed. Heading over to where Joe stands, balancing a plate of ribs, you glance back. Coopersmith, with eyes downcast, listens to another man talk, his hand fiddling with the knot on his tie again. You might not have been sure at first, but now you are. He was the one on the catwalk, watching as you edged around the factory floor, while the Virgin paid her visit. Joe says, So? He offered us the exclusive on their new program for NASA. You've been blessed, my son. An overlord has smiled upon you. He tips his glass.
When you tell Margarita what you suspected, she isn't surprised so much as hurt, even though she'd been certain of the fraud. The fact of it stings her. By association, you're part of the pain. Although she welcomed you back with a kiss, after the news, she doesn't want to touch at all. She withdraws into smoke and drink and finally wanders off with her coal black camera into the colonia. Disgusted, she says, with the human race and God himself. You begin to realize that despite her tough, cynical skin, there's at least a kernel of margarita that wanted the miracle in all its glory. Beneath your rejection, does some part of you want it too? Once in a while, in seeking for truth, it would be nice to find something better than truth. Later in the dark, she comes back, slides down beside you on the mattress, and starts to cry. From her, that's an impossible sound, so terrifying that it paralyzes you. It's the sound of betrayal, the very last crumb of purity floating away. You reach over to hold her, and she pushes your hand away. So you lie there, unable to take back the knowledge, the doubt, the truth, and knowing that the betrayal will always be tied to you. There's nothing you can do. The first opportunity you have, you swap your goggles with Gabrielle Perea. The only place you can do this is at lunch. You have to wait for a day when he carries the goggles off the assembly line straight to the lunch area. You sit with him, listening to the other workers, ask him things about the Virgin. He looks at you edgily. He knows he's supposed to pretend that you've never met, but you're making this impossible by sitting there beside him. Making the switch is child's play. Everyone's staring at him, hanging on his every word. You set your goggles beside his and then pick up the wrong pair a minute later and walk away. Close up, you can see his goggles have a slight refractive coating. He's going to know immediately what's happened, but with luck, he won't be able to do anything about it. He won't want to be seen talking to you in the middle of the factory. If Perea remotely shares your suspicions, he hasn't admitted it even to himself. This makes you think of Margarita, and your face burns with still more betrayal. It's too late, you tell yourself. This is what you came here to do. Ten days later, ten feet up in the forklift, you get what you wanted. The Virgin Mary appears to you. It's a bare wall, concrete brick and metal conduits, and suddenly there she is. She floats in the air, and when you look through the cage in front of the forklift, she is floating beyond it. The cage actually cuts her off. It's incredible. Wherever you look, she has a fixed location, an anchored spot in space. If you look up, her image remains fixed, sliding down the glasses. Somehow the circuit monitors your vision, tracks the turn of your head. Feedback loops. Wasn't that what Coopersmith said? It must be automatic, though. She may recognize the geometry, but not the receiver, because the first thing out of her mouth is, Te amo, Gabriel, mi profeta. So much for divinity. She doesn't know you swap goggles, even if the goggles themselves do. She's beautiful. Her hair peeking out beneath a white wimple is black. The blue of her robes is almost painful to see. No sky could match it. Her oval face is serene, a distillation of a million tender mothers. Oh, they're good, whoever created her. Who wouldn't want to believe in this Mary? Gabrielle couldn't help but succumb. The camera in your pocket is useless. 
She reminds you of your duty to your flock. She promises that you will all live in glory and comfort in heaven after this life of misery and toil, and not to blame. In the middle of her speech, she vanishes. It's so quick that you almost keel forward out of your seat. Thank God for the harness. You can guess what happened. Management came out for their afternoon show, and things were wrong. Gabriel Perea, the poor bastard, didn't respond. He's still somewhere attaching diodes to the little green boards, unaware that divinity has dropped by to see him again. You lower the forklift and get out, unable to help one last glance up into the air, looking for her. A mere scintilla, a tinkerbell of light would do. But there's nothing. Nothing. The last hour and a half, you go about your business as usual. Nothing has changed. Nothing can have changed. Your hope is that they think their circuits or the goggles malfunctioned. Something failed to project. Who knows what sort of feedback system was at work there. It has to be sophisticated to have dodged every solid shape in front of you. They'll want to see his goggles at the end of his shift. No one seems to be watching you yet. No one calls you in off the floor. So at the end of the day, you drop the goggles in the trash and leave with the others in your shift. Everyone's talking about going home, how hot it is, how much they'd like a bath or a beer. Everything's so normal it sets your teeth on edge. You ride the bus down the highway and get off with a dozen others at your colonia and head for home. It's on the dusty cow path of a road on foot that they grab you. Three of them. They know who they're looking for, and everyone else knows to stay out of it. These guys are las pandillas, the kind who'd kill someone for standing too close to you. A dozen people are all moving away down the road, and the looks they give you are looks of farewell. Adios, amigo. Won't be seeing you again. They know it, and so do you. You've seen the photos, the thousand merciless ways people don't come home. You're about to become one. The first guy walks straight up as if he's going to walk by, but suddenly his elbow swings right up into your nose. The sky goes black and shiny at the same time, and time must have jumped because you're on your knees, blood flowing out between your fingers, but you don't remember getting there. And then you're on your back, looking at the sky, and still... It seems no one said a word to you, but your head is ringing, blood roaring like a waterfall. Someone laid you out. Each pose is a snapshot of death. Each time there's less of you to shoot. They'll compress you, maybe for hours, maybe for days. That's how it works, isn't it? How long before gasoline and a match? Will you feel anything by then? You stare up at the sky, at the first few stars, and wait for the inevitable continuation. The bodies get buried in the Lote Bravo. At least you know where you're going. In a couple of months, someone will find you. Will Joe come looking? Someone yells, Aguila! And a door slams. Or is that in your head, too? Footsteps approach. Here it comes, you think. Is there anything you could do to prepare for the pain? Probably not. No. The face that peers down at you doesn't help. Hispanic, handsome well-groomed. This could be any businessman in Mexico, but you know it isn't, and you remember someone telling you about the narcotraficantes investigating in the maquiladora, taking their drug money and buying into the international trade. 
silent partners. Not going to hurt you, Kimosabi, he says with a sly grin, as though your broken nose and battered skull don't exist. Couldn't do that, no, no. Questions would be asked about you. You're not just some factory cunt, are you? His grin becomes a sneer. You've never actually seen anyone sneer before. This guy hates women for a hobby. No, no, he says again. You're a second-rate wedding photographer who thought he was Dick fucking Tracy. What did you do, hang out with the Juarez photo locos and get all righteous? Sure, of course you did. He kneels, clucking his tongue. You notice he's holding your Minox. Listen, Cholo, you print what you've uncovered and Senor Pereira will die. You think that's a threat, hey? But it's not. You'll make him out a fool to his own people. They trust him, you know? It's all they've got. So go ahead. Take it from them and see what you get. We care so much, we're letting you go home. Here. He tosses the camera into the dirt. You're only a threat to the people who think like you do, man. Now he grabs your arm and pulls you upright. The world threatens to flip on you, and your stomach promises to go with it if it does. Close up. He smells of citrus cologne. He whispers to you, Go home, Cholo. Take pictures of little kids in swimming pools and cats caught in trees and armadillos squashed on the highway. Amateurs don't survive. Neither do professionals here. Next time, you're going to meet some of them. Then he walks away. You're left wobbling on the road. The gang of three are gone, too. Nobody's around. Behind you, you hear a car door and the rev of an engine. A silver SUV shoots off down the dirt road, back to the pavement and away. You stumble along the road to the colonia. Your head feels as tender as the skin of a plum. Your sinuses are clogged with blood, and your nose creaks when you inhale. People watch in awe as you approach your shack. In that moment, you're as much of a miracle to them as Gabriel Perea. They probably think they're seeing a ghost. And they're right, aren't they? You aren't here any longer. Margarita's not inside. Her camera is gone. There's no one to comfort you. No one to hear how you were written off. The heat inside is like the core of the sun. Back outside, you walk to the water barrel, no longer concerned with what contaminants float in the water. You splash it on your face, over your head. Benzene? Who cares? You're dead anyway. You touch your nose and it's swollen up to the size of a saguaro. Embarrassing how easily you've been persuaded to leave. Didn't take anything at all, did it? One whack and a simple, go away, senor, you're a fool. What'd you think? You could change the world? Make a difference? Not a second-rate wedding photographer like you. Not someone with an apartment and a bed and an office and a car. Compromised by the good life. Nobody who leads your life is going to make the difference over here. It takes a breed of insanity you can't even approach. Baum was dead wrong about everything. He simplified the problems to fit, but they aren't simple. Answers aren't simple. You, you're simple. Two little girls kneel not far from the barrel, cooking their meal in tin pans on top of an iron plate mounted over an open flame. There's a rusted electrical box beside them, with outlet holes like eyes, and a wide slit for a switch. It's a robot face, silently screaming. The girls watch you, even when they're not looking.
Long after it gets dark, you're still alone inside. Margarita must be off on some adventure, doing what she does best, what you can't do. You've had hours to build upon your inadequacy. Run your story and they'll tear Perea apart. He was doomed the moment he believed in the possibility of her, just like the church and the little Catholic boy you once were. When you see that, you don't want to see Margarita. You don't want to have to explain why you aren't going any further. All you can do is hurt her. Only a threat. You pack up your few things, leaving the dozen film canisters you didn't use. Let the real photojournalist have them. Nada que ver, you tell the empty room. Back across the border, before midnight, before your life turns back into a pumpkin, better she should think you're lying under three feet of dirt. A month rolls by in a sort of fog. Booze, painkillers, and the hell-bent desire to forget your own name. Your nose is healing. It's a little crooked. Has a bluish bump in the middle. Baum keeps his distance and doesn't ask you anything about your story, though at first you're too busy to notice. Then one day you find out from the sports editor that Joe got a package while you were gone. Although nobody knows what was in it, when he opened it, he turned white as a ghost, just picked up his office and went home, called in sick the next three days. When you try and talk to him about what happened, he interrupts with an angry, Don't think you're the first person who's been smashed on the rocks of old Juarez. Then he walks away. That got to him somehow. If they wanted to, they could get to both of you. Like the wind, this can blow across the river. That was the message for you. Then one day, while you're placing ad graphics, Joe Baum comes over and sits beside you. He won't look you in the eye. Very softly, he said, Got a call from Chicken Man. Margarita Espinada's dead. You stare at the page on the monitor so hard you're seeing the pixels. Finally, you ask him, What happened? Don't know. Don't know who did it. She's been gone for weeks and weeks. But he said that wasn't unusual. She lived mostly in her car. Auto loco. Yeah. He starts to get up, as if his weight is too much for him. He drops back onto the chair. Ah, uh, he says she left a package for you, addressed to him, so maybe whatever happened, she had some warning. With every word, he puts more distance between himself and her death. It's going to be a funeral tomorrow. So soon? Baum made a face, lips pressed tight. Defiantly, he meets your gaze. She was dumped in the Lote Bravo a while ago. Poyamano nods sadly. Cuba, deputy, he asks, but not with any interest. His eyes are bloodshot, drunk, or crying, maybe both. Some others are there inside. A few nod. Some you remember. Most of them pretend you aren't there. Her body lies in La Catedral, three blocks from the chicken man's current abode. You shouldn't see it. Their newest member took pictures. Ernesto. He was there, following the cops with his police band radio the way he always does, always trying to get the scene before they do. He'd taken a half a dozen shots before he saw the black boots and realized whose body he was photographing. They torn off most of her clothes but left the boots. You remember the one who warned you off. The boots were left on so everyone would know who she was. Everyone drinks, 
toasting her memory. One of them begins weeping, and someone else throws an arm around him and mutters. One of the others spits. None of them seems to suspect that you and she spent time together. In any case, you're an interloper on their private grief. Not one of them. Margarita must have known you weren't dead. Otherwise, why send a package for you? Late in the afternoon, everyone has shown up. Almost two dozen photographers, and some unseen sign passes among you all, and everyone rises up and goes out together. You move in a line through the crowds, between white buses and a traffic snarl, and across the square to the Neon Cathedral. Orange lights bathe you all. Ernesto, with his nothing mustache, runs up to the door and snaps a picture. Even in the solemn moment, his instinct is for the image. A few glare at him, but no one chastises him. You gather in the front pews, kneel, pray, go up one by one and light your candles for her soul. Your hand is shaking so hard you could hardly ignite the wick. After everyone else has left, he gives you the package. It's nearly the size of a suitcase. He says, She left it for you, and I don't violate her wishes. She was here a couple of times when I wasn't around, using the dark room. You pull out a folder of photos. On top is the picture she took the first day you arrived in Colonia Universidad. You look like you could take on anything. Just looking at it is humiliating. Underneath is her collection of shots inside the factory. The top photo is Gabriel Perea, standing all twisted and pointing. Foam on his mouth, eyes bugging out. The image is spoiled because of some of the fogging on the left side of it, as if there was a light leak. Whatever caused it lit up Perea, too. You almost miss the thing that's different. He's not wearing his goggles. You go on to the next shot, but it's a picture of the crowd behind him, all staring wide-eyed. She's not using a flash, but there's some sort of light source. In the third, fourth, and fifth shots, you see it. It shines straight at Perea. There are lens flares in each image. The light is peculiar, diffuse, as if a collection of small bulbs are firing off, making a sort of ring. The middle is hard to make out until the sixth picture. She must have slid on her knees between the onlookers to get it. Perea's feet are close by and out of focus. The light is the center of the image, the light which is different in each shot. Jaime, you say. Do you have a loop? Of course. He gives it to you. You hold it over the image, over the light. Back in the lab at the Herald, you'll blow the image up poster size to see the detail without the lens. The outline, and at the top of it, a bunch of smudges, a hint of eye sockets and mouth, a trace of nose and cheek. Can an AI break loose from its handlers, you wonder? Does it have a will? Or is this the next step in their plan? You give the loop back. He says, That Perea is gone, disappeared. People are looking all over for him. They say he was called up to heaven. One way or another, that's probably true. If the Virgin can float on the air now, they don't need an interpreter. Belief will do the work hereafter. Hope used as a halter. That crazy girl, she went right back into the factory, even after he was gone. You wipe at your eyes, and a half-laugh escapes you. That crazy girl. You close the folder. 
You can't let anyone have these. That's the ultimate wrenching realization. Margarita died because of this, and no one can see it. The story can't be told because it's a lie. She knew it too, but she went ahead. This is your sacred heart, your rusting nail. Gabrielle Perea was called up to heaven or killed. For you, it doesn't matter which. By revealing nothing, you let him go on living. Under the top folder, there are others full of negatives. Hundreds of inverted images of the world. Black teeth and faces, black suns and black clouds. The world made new, made hers. This is a way you can keep her alive. Jaime pats your shoulder as you leave with your burden. You go home, deputy, he tells you. Even the devil won't live here. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Gregory Frost. Big thank you to Gregory, and hopefully, as usual, might try and sneak another story by Gregory. And Jim, thank you so much. Great narration, as ever. So that is Oral Delights, show 131. A week when Steve Ely stepped down, he'll be sorely missed. But podcasts and science fiction podcasts keep trundling on. Again, don't forget Twitter and Facebook if you want to check out me and we'll get together. If anyone can help us with that Apple Mac issue, that would be fantastic. And look out as well, what I've also put in the sanatorium feed is the very first interview I did with, or actually it's just a chat with myself and Kenny Park. Remember, good old Kenny Park was foolish enough, emailed when myself and Kieran were kind of kicking together and Kenny was the... TV crew, organised a TV crew and we flew over to France to do the TV interview with Michael Moorcock. Well, I emailed Kenny a while ago, or a few weeks ago, should I say, and put this idea to Kenny about maybe doing a TV documentary on, you know, maybe some of the great writers there. And we did the first kind of chat, and this was actually the initial chat where I actually I was asking Kenny does he want to be a part of it? Do you know? Does he, is he up for that kind of thing? So if you go into the sanatorium or if you sign up for the sanatorium, you'll get to hear that. And throughout, you know, coming weeks, I'll put the odd fact article in here about this new project that myself and Kenny are going to take on. Like I say, we're going to try and get and do a TV documentary on science fiction writers. You know, and the, the dream is to kind of get a camera in the face of you know people like Ursula K. Le Guin. Harl Ellison. Whether it comes off, I don't know, but we're open to suggestions. If anyone's got any ideas for the actual, the, the, the spark, the idea that we need to do this, you know, please come over and, and drop me an email, drop Kenny an email, listen to that sanatorium show, and like I say, we'll be putting some more fact articles on this, this show as well, so you can kind of keep up the breast of what's happening. But that's very early stages of a new project that Starship Sova and Kenny Park with his Cage TV is getting together and doing. Do look out for that. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Of that duration procedure machine. Shuttle Sofa.
set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.